Well, good evening, everyone. If you have your Bibles and you'd like to turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 7, you're welcome to follow along. I'll begin this evening by talking a little bit about interior decorating, and there are a couple of different ways we could introduce this, but I noticed a local news report that I heard a few days ago that talked about some new housing development here in the valley, and the builders built the building, and when the purchaser, the the homeowner, you know, moved into their new building, it was filled with all kinds of problems, shoddy workmanship, and it's been months for some of these people, and they can't, they can't get a response from the company to get all of the problems fixed. What would you do if you were given $100,000 to make home improvements where you live? What would you spend it on? What kind of things would you do? It doesn't matter where you live, right? Trailer, apartment, uh, your own home. I'm sure you could think of some things in your house you would like to fix, right? We learn things about people by how they decorate their house. We know that men men are different from women. It's one thing we learn. There could be a lot of different scenarios when we're talking about interior decorating, but this passage tonight, we'll talk a little bit about that, won't it? In Solomon's palace and also in the temple. We are talking about two different houses. I thought about dividing this yesterday into two sermons because there, there's actually more in here than I realized, but it's, it was too late. You know, modern homiletic classes, Jesus would have failed all of the preaching classes in today's seminaries. I'm telling you right now, they tell us things that are great, good ideas, but Jesus would have failed all of them if you read some of his sermons. He, he often didn't have just one point, did he? And there are two real distinct applications here about what am I doing with my money and am I using my spiritual gift? There are two, it could be easily two different lessons. But our first thought this evening, use your possessions to honor the Lord. We discover tonight that the palace took twice as long than the building of the temple. And the questions I'm asking, the first one here, is why is the temple account interrupted? Right? Why am I asking that question? Perhaps you're looking at me like, I didn't know the temple account is being interrupted. And I don't really care that it's being interrupted. Remember we said that chapters 5 through 9 of 1 Kings all relate to the discussion of the building and the furnishing of God's temple, right? Chapter 8, the feeling of God's glory of the temple. We've already stated that about the, the planning involved, the building, the dedication of the temple, right? This was King Solomon's greatest work in his life. And Solomon's life that is recorded for us in the book of Kings is all in chapters 1 through 11. That tells us that half of those chapters are all about the temple, And that is the way that the author is emphasizing for us the importance of the building of the temple. It was important to Solomon, and it was important to God. And I mentioned last time that Bruce Waltke, I think I like a lot of what he says here. He says the reason why it's like that here is because this theme of the temple of God, right, erupting, not a volcano blowing up, but penetrating into this world, right, the kingdom of God coming to this earth, right, that, he believes, is the theme of the Bible, Now, whether that's the theme of the Bible or not, I don't know, but it's a major theme in the Bible. There's no doubt about that. Verses 1 through 12 are not about the temple, right? Out of all of these chapters, we're now talking about a contrast, Solomon's palace that he is building for himself. So there is some kind of an interruption here, a a slight digression. And we're asking the question, why does the author do that? Verse 1 says, 
of 1 Kings 7, Solomon was building his own house 13 years and he finished his entire house. If you look at the bottom of chapter 6, those last two verses, what do we learn there about how many years it took him to build the temple? Seven years. You don't have to be a math major to figure out that he spent more time building his house than God's house. And that's why we're asking this question, uh, especially the second question. Is he being critical of Solomon? Maybe the author thinks that it's best to tell us that Solomon built the temple as well as several other buildings. There are many other buildings we will encounter in our text tonight. Did the author view all of these buildings as kind of one massive building program of Solomon? Maybe he thought that. Remember that when we began our study of the book of Kings, I mentioned that the first two chap- in, in the first two chapters, some commentators, right, they interpret Solomon's, uh, his actions there negatively and others interpret it positively. We're, we're seeing that same dynamic here as we study briefly his great palace that he built for himself. Paul House tells us that the author inserted between, right, the building of the temple in the building of Solomon's palace. He says, is this, ask, is this revealing to us that Solomon's, his kind of what we would call secular interest, maybe they never ceased, maybe they are overriding his religious, is there a problem with his priorities is another way to ask it. Is that what's going on here? I mean, it's true that his palace may have costed more money because it was quite a bit bigger, right, than the house of God. Some of these differences are natural as we think about this. But we still have to ask the question, right? In close proximity, the end of chapter 6 and the beginning of chapter 7, there does seem to be a bit of a contrast there. In fact, Bible translations are different here. Some of them use the word but or however, right? When When they tell us, well, however, Solomon was taking longer to build his palace. In my mind, it It raises some doubts about what's going on here with his priorities. Overall, there appears to be at least five major buildings that we will encounter in verses 2 through 12. And these buildings Solomon built during these years. However, there are some things that we do not know about some of these buildings. We're not told everything. We're told some things about some things. And obviously, some things are really clear to us. We're told some things about the size and the costliness of Solomon's palace. Are we given this information in verse 1 to remind us that the temple was more important than Solomon's palace? Or do you think the author might be suggesting to us that Solomon's priorities perhaps were changing? It's really hard to determine in these first few chapters, isn't it? There are good arguments on both sides of this. I'm going to read verses 2 through 6 in the New Living Translation just because of the measurements will make more sense to us. One of Solomon's buildings was called the Palace of the Forest of Lebanon. It was 150 feet long, 75 feet wide, and 45 feet high. There are four rows of cedar pillars and great cedar beams rested on the pillars. The hall had a cedar roof above the beams on the pillars were 45 side rooms arranged in three tiers of 15 each. On each end of the long hall were three rows of windows facing each other. All the doorways and doorposts had rectangular frames and were arranged in sets of three facing each other. 
Solomon also built the hall of pillars, which was 75 feet long and 45 feet wide. There was a porch in front along with a canopy supported by pillars. And then I'll now read in the ESV in verse 7 and 8. And he made the hall of the throne where he was to pronounce judgment, even the hall of judgment. It was finished with cedar from floor to rafters. Verse 8, his own house where he was to dwell in the other court back of the hall was of like workmanship. Solomon also made a house like this hall for Pharaoh's daughter, whom he had taken in marriage. So there perhaps are at least five buildings there that we've looked at. And we know a few things about some of them and not a lot about the other buildings. Three of the buildings were somehow given formal titles, the House of the Forest of Lebanon, the House of Pillars, and the Hall of the Throne, or it could be called the Hall of Judgment. And then, of course, there was Solomon's own residence, and then one for his Egyptian wife. The first building described in verses 2-5 through is the Great Assembly Hall. This may have served as some kind of armory, I'm not exactly sure, but according to 1 Kings 10, and then later there's a passage in Isaiah that may suggest that weapons were stored there. This building is much larger than the temple. This building is supported by four rows of cedar pillars and cedar crossbeams above them. It is called the Palace of the Forest of Lebanon because it must have given an appearance like the great trees of Lebanon. And maybe in some ways that was a way to honor all of the help that the king of Lebanon had given to him. There was a partnership there, King Hiram of Tyre. He supplied all of this beautiful, high-quality cedar wood for the building of the temple, and now it's being used in other buildings. The hall of the throne or the hall of judgment, I mean, I'm not even going to talk about it right now. That is an easy gospel illustration to Jesus Christ. The more I've studied this, the more I've realized there's a lot of connections here to Christians, the church, and Jesus. Almost everything in this passage can be applied that way. But that's another one, isn't it? These were all public buildings. There is no doubt in my mind that everything Solomon built was built to the highest uh, standard of quality. He used the highest quality materials in building. All of it was done with great skill. All of these seem to have the same architectural style. They're not mismatched, are they? They're all beautiful. Again, the king's palace was not a public building, although there was a gate that gave him access to all of the public buildings in this royal complex of buildings. What are we to think of all these buildings? I mean, are they necessary? Are we learning any viewpoints uh, through any of this of what we, how we should think and assess Solomon's life and so on? He is the king, isn't he? And he does need a place to live. That's not wrong. And normally kings live in you know, bigger houses than we live in around the world and throughout history. That itself is not wrong, I don't think. It would be good for the king who is the son of David to live close to the temple, so that's also good, isn't it? It may be a good reminder for him. There are several other positive considerations about the palace that Solomon built. It resembles the temple in the way that it's designed. That too can be good. The close connection between the palace and the temple could also emphasize that this earthly king was a king who served under a higher king above him, the Lord God in heaven. All of that could be great in reminding him 
that he was under God's rule. Again, verse 8 ends, Solomon also made a house like this hall for Pharaoh's daughter whom he had taken in marriage. And we start to ask questions, well, why, why does she want to have or why does she need to have a separate quarters for herself? I'm not sure I know the answer. I have some guesses. Some people have suggested that she wanted this place because that would be the place where all of the royal harem would eventually live. I mean, is she the queen? Is she the queen? You can think about that for a minute. She's not necessarily the queen, is she? Who's the queen? It's always the king's mother if you're from the line of Judah, right? That's why I don't know why she had the separate house. Riken reminds us eventually Pharaoh's daughter would prove to be a stumbling block for Solomon. And there's going to be more to say in the coming weeks on that. Verses 9 through 12 conclude the description of Solomon's royal palace. All these were made of costly stones, cut according to measure, sawed with saws back and front, even from the foundation to the coping and from the house to the great court. The foundation was of costly stones, huge stones, stones of eight and ten cubits. And above were costly stones cut across to measurement and cedar. The great court had three courses of cut stone all around and a course of cedar beams. So had the inner court of the house of the Lord and the vestibule of the house. Now, for the sake of simplicity, and it's not to exact measurement, this is the temple and the auditorium is Solomon's palace. I mean, that's bigger than here. That was just a rough sketch. We have kind of a compound here. It's sort of in some ways the size of some of the things involved there. The stones in Solomon's palace were enormous, 12 to 15 feet across. They were very expensive. One author said Solomon had to pay a king's ransom to get his house built. All of those massive rocks cut to perfection, hauled up to Jerusalem. That was monumental work. And people have asked the question, why did Solomon have to build such an expensive, extravagant house? And that leads us to a second question. Is the author being critical of Solomon? First of all, when we come to the book of Kings, we should not be surprised that all of the kings are going to be given an evaluation, aren't they? It's it's included, especially the sons of David, a divine evaluation of their personal priorities and leadership of the nation. How did they relate to God and the covenant? The author seems to follow a specific formula when he does this. It's like giving the the king a theological report card. They, They get the grade of an A, B, C, D, E, and some get an F. And they all get different grades. How would you rank Solomon in what you've known so far. Most of us would probably give him a good grade, wouldn't we? Is the author being critical of Solomon by by telling us that his house is twice as big as God's house? Again, of course, there's naturally division on this amongst interpreters. There are arguments that say the author is not being critical, and there, there, there there are arguments we should consider, and other arguments that say, yes, the author may be critical here at this point. In building such a beautiful and luxurious palace, was King Solomon already beginning to fall into self-indulgence, or is this just a sign of God's blessing upon his life? 
Again, it's, it's difficult to tell. I think there is probably a contrast here between the size of his house and the temple that is given. Like so many other places in the Old Testament, the author just kind of plops the information before us and doesn't give any comment on the morality of the situation he just described. And I've wondered about that, and I've wondered, is it possible that God had this book written this way so that all of the people that first heard it and now us reading it in our generation might think for ourselves any connections back to anything Moses would have said? Does this help us when there's ambiguity to look at other passages of Scripture? Moses did instruct the Israelites in Deuteronomy 17.17. He says, if you have a king, they're not supposed to accumulate a lot of gold and silver. And it's obvious that at this point in time, Solomon has accumulated a lot of gold and silver. Dale Ralph Davis, a commentator that I really like, he says, this is a positive statement. There's nothing really to worry about here in this point. He appreciates the criticism. He says it just doesn't rise to the level of that occasion. And one of the reasons he he gives for that, and this is a good reason, in the next chapter, chapter 8, verses 10 to 11, that sounds pretty positive when the temple is dedicated, right? When the priest withdrew from the holy place, the cloud filled the temple of the Lord, and the priest could not perform their service because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the temple. That sounds really positive, doesn't it? Another possible explanation that would justify a royal palace this big is because a king that is this important at this time in history would be having a lot of visitors coming into it. People were coming from the regions of the nation of Israel, various leaders, other foreign dignitaries would be coming because he had alliances, right? He was the powerful king, and there were weaker kings that were under him through covenant, and they would be bringing tribute to them. And maybe they needed a place to stay when they came. And so, yes, you can. Where are they going to eat? You got to have a big dining table, right, for that. And so, yes, there are. I mean, we have a White House that's bigger than our house. And it's normal for leaders to live in places like that. However, there are a couple of negative thoughts here, and this is an example from Bruce Waltke. He says, after describing how the book of Kings evaluates each king, He makes this observation, and all of us should be thinking of our own lives as I read this. The author begins his evaluations by characterizing the spiritual double-mindedness of Solomon. Now, this is something that we need to stop and think about, because we can do the same thing, can't we? He did love the Lord. That's clearly been stated in chapter 3, the first three verses. But he also has married an Egyptian princess. And that kind of causes some questions in our mind. Like, why did he do that? Waltke goes on to say, Solomon's double-mindedness and his increasing addiction to foreign women, non-covenantal women, ultimately led to the political division of his kingdom. He has a state saying in a book that, that I'm reading, he says, because of Solomon's divided heart, the kingdom will be divided. And that makes a lot of sense to me because that is what's going to happen, isn't it, in this book? We know that James tells us in the New Testament, in chapter 1, verses 5 through 6, as he is contrasting the subject of wisdom in contrast to double-mindedness, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. Did Solomon not ask for wisdom? Absolutely. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. 
He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Something to consider as I've pondered the life of Solomon and interesting with some of the authors in relation to Solomon's priorities, that as followers of Jesus Christ, can you love God like as Solomon did, but also have a struggle with loving the world? And I think absolutely we can say that that can happen. We can struggle with covetousness too, can't we? We can desire someone else's house. Isn't there something in the Old Testament about that? Somewhere in Exodus, I think. Riken says, Admittedly, 1 Kings does not explicitly criticize Solomon for building such a beautiful house. He says the tone actually sounds kind of like admiring of it at this point. And yet he quotes from Jeremiah. And I had forgotten that these words were in the Old Testament. Jeremiah pronounces a woe upon any king. Jeremiah 22.14, it says this, I will build myself a great house with spacious upper rooms, or or who cuts out windows for his palace and panels the inner interior with cedar. Then Jeremiah asks this question that we could think about Solomon's life in, in verse 15 of that chapter. Do you think you are a king because you compete in cedar? I mean, Jeremiah was concerned with the problem. The king at this point in his day, you're more focused on the interior decoration, the beauty of your palace, than dealing with righteousness over the people that you govern. And there were all kinds of societal problems going on in that day. Jeremiah knew that what made a king was not a palace, but righteousness, right? Caring for, especially at that time, the the poor and the needy. It wasn't wrong for a king to live in a big palace, but when you forget why you're there, then it becomes a big problem. And that leads to an easy application for all of us. Are you honoring God with your money? It doesn't matter if you have a lot or a little. Are you honoring God with your money? We know that these these questions can be very challenging for all of us when we stop to think about some of the things that the Bible says about this area. One author looks at this passage, his name is Proven, he's very critical of Solomon throughout, and he says this whole passage, right, it smacks of affluence and indulgence. He thinks Solomon has already fallen into just living for himself instead of for God and for the people. It's not wrong, of course, to have a nice home or to want a nice home. But it could be a spiritual danger for some of us, both for Solomon It will eventually prove to be a danger, and it could be also for us. It's not simply money that we love as much as the things that money can buy, right? The things that we desire to have. And sometimes we too can desire luxurious things that maybe God doesn't want us to desire in our life. These are often wisdom issues that we have to ask the question to ourselves. Of course, it's not wrong to use high-quality material when you make a home improvement, in your, in your home or wherever you live. God made all of these things. They come from nature, special wood and so on. But they do come at a price, don't they? And the lesson here is for us to be aware that we too could become uh, guilty of self-indulgence in our personal priorities. I don't know if this is true, but I read that the boxer Floyd Mayweather just spent like $7 million in some high-end fashion shop, like, was it recently? And I'm almost thinking to myself, how do you spend that much money in a fashion shop? Last week, the financial website, The Motley Fool, 
had this headline that says this, the largest wealth transfer in history has begun. A hundred trillion dollars is beginning to, beginning to migrate from the, the parents to all of these people we call zennials, Gen Z and millennials. There, there's going to be a lot of inheritance transferred. Uh, what are these people going to do with all of this money? What would you do if you inherited a couple million dollars? I mean, would you use all of it for yourself? Would you use some of it for yourself? Those things test us from a spiritual standpoint very quickly, don't they? What do I do with my money is often a test of your and my spirituality. You don't have to have a large inheritance for this to apply to you. I can still ask myself, am I honoring God with the money, the finances that he has entrusted with me? Are they throwing my personal priorities off in my life? They can easily be thrown off, right? A relationship with God and his kingdom. Am I living my life to kind of pursue money, to pursue wealth, to pursue riches? That has been the downfall of many professing Christians. We read about that even in the New Testament. A guy named Demas, Paul's fellow worker in the gospel, we are told. In the book of Philemon, during Paul's first imprisonment in Rome, Demas was also in Rome. Perhaps Demas was with Paul during his second imprisonment in Rome. Some people believe that. Then something happened. Demas forsook Paul. He abandoned the ministry and he left town. And Paul wrote about that in 2 Timothy 4.10. He said, Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me and has gone to Thessalonica. Jesus said something about a wildflower and compared the wildflower to Solomon, didn't he? Solomon toiled and he was a magnificent king. He had lots of splendor. And Jesus said about these toils, the the lilies of the field, how they grow, they neither toil or spin. Yet I tell you, Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Perhaps Jesus is making a couple of points there. I mean, a wildflower cannot be guilty of self-indulgence, right? A wildflower is so beautiful, really more beautiful than anything Solomon had in a sense. And a wildflower is not like a human being, doesn't toil to gain wealth, doesn't fall into idolatry or covetousness. The wildflower, which lives for such a short period of time, is a spectacular show of our Creator's beauty in creation, a simple flower. Did Jesus tell us that so that we won't worry about the temptation of where our finances and where our, our provisions will be coming from? That he, he will take care of us in food and in clothing and in shelter? Randy Elkhorn, more than any other modern author, has really challenged my own thinking in the whole area of how do we use our finances. And I'm still not there in learning what he has to say, but some of the things he says are really helpful. He says, Jesus repeatedly turned our definition of the so-called good life on its head. There is more to happiness in giving than receiving, Acts chapter 20, verse 35. Jesus told us that parting with money to help others will bring us more joy than hanging on to that money and using it for just my personal well-being. It's counterintuitive, isn't it? Solomon spent a lot of money on himself. Now, do you think that brought him happiness? Do you think there's any way we'll ever find that out? Do you think Solomon was happy? He had more money than we had. Do you think that brought him happiness? Elkhorn says, Those who hoard their money like those who spend it on themselves are the unhappiest people on the planet. 
Jesus calls us to do something radical, love others by giving away our money and time. That sounds like loss, not gain, yet in God's economy, that's exactly how we can expand and enhance our own lives. And so he wants us to think about the eternal consequences of the use of our money here in the temporal world. There are, it's an investment, right, if we think about the way we use our money. Alcorn, of course, has been very encouraging in his own personal story of what he went through to learn this. Martin Luther is credited with the saying, quote, I have held many things in my hand and I have lost them all, but whatever I've placed in God's hands, that I still possess. Alcorn reminds us of the Hollywood actor Owen Williams, or Wilson. You know who he is? In 2007, he tried to slash his own wrist to commit suicide. I mean, this guy was getting million-dollar paychecks. He had lots of fame, lots of money, travel, adventure around the world. A beautiful home on the shores of Maui. Beautiful women in his life, and yet he was not happy. He was miserable. He wanted out of this life. And there are plenty of other stories of Christians living in situations of poverty. They lack opportunity. And they even live with situations of injustice in their lands. And they are content and happy. And it's it's, it's a marvelous contrast to see. Jesus did say in Luke 12, 15, Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. But if you have them, use them for God's glory. So it is, Luke 12, 21, so it is the one who lays up treasures for himself and is not rich towards God. D.L. Moody said, our greatest fear should not be of failure, but of succeeding at something that doesn't really matter. That is a convicting thought, isn't it? Alcorn goes on to say, money and possessions are not life-giving. They are utterly, I mean, Aristotle knew this. This is a fascinating thing about this. They are utterly incapable of imparting to us the identity, purpose, and significance and security that we crave. And the world keeps telling us that's the only way you can be happy. And Jesus says, no, it isn't. Reichen goes on, and before we go to our next point, if we are spending more on ourselves, shortchanging God, we should remember how much it costs the Father to give us a son. Another gospel application. In our gospel, the Father, right, our salvation was costly in the coming of Jesus Christ. Our second thought tonight is use the gifts God gives you for His glory. Why describe these two large pillars as we will discover in the verses before us. This is not the king. It's the same name, but it's not the Gentile king that we encounter here, Hiram of Tyre. He's either half, he's half Jewish, isn't he? His mother is an Israelite, and his father, who has now passed away, I believe, was from Hiram. Verse 13 through 14, and King Solomon sent and brought Hiram of Tyre. He was the son of a widow of the tribe of Naphtali, and his father was a man of Tyre, a worker in bronze, and he was full of wisdom, understanding, and skill for making any work in bronze. He came to King Solomon and did all his work. He was very skilled. The the words that are used there are the words that we find in the book of Proverbs that are connected to wisdom. The writer underscores the importance of the temple by giving a surprisingly detailed coverage of its right, the dimensions we've, we've been reading about, the material, the architectural structure and furnishings. 
Listen to this thought by Bruce Waltke when he compares this bronze worker to the Renaissance. This is interesting. He says, Solomon's Renaissance excels the centuries later Italian Renaissance in purity of religion and in craftsmanship. For example, Hiram's skill in bronze exceeds by far that of the Italian Renaissance bronze myth, Cellini. I'd never thought of that. Bronze is not something that is easy to work with if you're going to make something round like we're going to read in a moment, especially if it's big. You know, our Liberty Bell has a crack in it. We read about two bronze pillars starting in verses 15 through 20. Again, I'll read from the New Living Translation just because of the measurements. Verse 15, Hiram cast two bronze pillars, each 27 feet tall. Now, as we think about this, these pillars do not bear any significant structural support for the temple. Okay? They're just there. 27 feet tall and 18 feet in circumference. That's big, isn't it? For the tops of the pillars, he cast bronze capitals, each seven and a half feet tall. Each capital was decorated with seven sets of latticework and interwoven chains. He also encircled the latticework with two rows of pomegranates to decorate the capitals over the pillars. The capitals on the columns inside the entry room were shaped like water lilies, and they were six feet tall. The capitals on the two pillars had 200 pomegranates in two rows around them beside the rounded surface next to the latticework. Most of us couldn't draw this, let alone work and do this in high-quality craftsmanship. But he did, didn't he? Verses 21 through 22 tell us that there were names given to these two bronze pillars. He set up the pillars on the vestibule of the temple. He set up the pillar in the south and called its name Joachim. And he set up the pillar in the north and called its name Boaz. And on the top of the pillars was lily work. Thus the work of the pillars was finished. These are freestanding pillars that are not carrying any weight of the temple at all. They're not even necessary for the structure to be upheld. I mean, isn't this a waste of materials? I really like what Dale Ralph Davis, he and a couple other authors helped me to appreciate. Like These are symbolic names for something, aren't they? They're not needed for the temple, but we, we believe that God loves beauty. He is not just a utilitarian God. He's much more than that. And they symbolize, they must symbolize something. More specifically, Davis says, the name Jachin probably means he that is Yahweh will establish. Or it could be symbolic of a stated prayer, may he established. By the way, that word is used specifically, that Hebrew word in 2 Samuel 7, when God gave the promise to David, that I'm going to create an unending dynasty. It's found in 2 Samuel 7, verse 12, 13, and 16. Your throne will be established. And isn't that how the book of Kings began? The same word is used there. That pillar tells us that God established through David this promise. And now Solomon, right? In 1 Kings 2, verse 12, verse 24, verse 45 and 46, God established Solomon's reign. He secured it. That pillar perhaps was a visible reminder that the Lord had brought his kingdom to earth through the rule of David and his descendants. How about Boaz? Perhaps that name, it might mean in him, that in him, that is Yahweh, is strength. Or by him, Yahweh, the king is mighty. 
Some believe that this pillar is associated with Psalm 21. This pillar could have served to function as another visible witness, a testimony to the king of Israel. God is the real source of your strength. And it it sounds to me like most of the sons of David forgot that, that will rule after Solomon dies. They, They trust in their political strength, and that's why God sends the prophets to confront them. Together, these two pillars of witness could testify to divine strength. God will establish the king and his kingdom right there in front of the temple for the king to see every day of the week. And in the era of the new covenant, Jesus Christ fulfills what those pillars represent, doesn't he? He is our great king. He fulfills what those two bronze pillars represented. Another question, why describe all of the bronze work? Again, I'll read some of this from the New Living Translation just because of the, some of the dimensions here. Verse 23, Hiram cast a great round basin. It's called the sea for a reason. Fifteen feet across. This is a massive work of bronze when you think about how big this is. I mean, how many gallons would your swimming pool hold at your house? Does anyone have? No? You have a swimming pool? This, how, many, how many gallons? 24,000, so this is like a 10 to 12,000, uh, you know, gallon bowl. That gives us an idea. 15 feet across from the rim to rim called the sea. It was seven and a half feet deep and about 45 feet in circumference. It was encircled just below its rim by two rows of decorative gourds. There were about six gourds per foot all the way around, and they were cast as part of the basin. The sea was placed on a base of 12 bronze oxen, all facing outward. Three faced north, three faced west, and three faced south, and three faced east, and the sea rested on them. The walls of the sea were about three inches thick, and its rim flared out like a cup and resembled a water lily blossom. It could hold about 11,000 gallons of water. Now, the sea represents many other things that we won't talk about tonight. That's, that, that bronze, it was called the sea because it represented the seas of the world. You say, well, that sounds crazy. Okay, we may talk about that later. It may have reminded the Israelites or even the priests that were there that that God brought them through the waters of the sea out of of Egypt at the time of the Exodus. Much more could be said. In verses 27 through 39, we find 10 more bronze water containers. Maybe these are like 200 gallons each. They were portable. They could be moved around. And you look at that in verses 27 through 39, and there are lots of these, and there's lots of decorations going on there. In one commentary, I can't remember who who I read this past week, there was a story told about a sculpture, an artist working in one of these cathedrals somewhere probably in Europe, and he's up there high on the scaffolding. And, and someone walks in and they see this person walking, uh, working way up high. You know, it's probably dark in there and you can't see up there. And as the person on the ground sees the person up there laying down perhaps on scaffolding working, the person is working on finishing a beautiful flower. It's way, way up there. And the problem was that the flower was facing upward so that no one's going to see it down below anyway. And he kind of asked the question, what on earth are you doing that for? First of all, none of us can see it. It's too far up there. And the person working on it immediately said, I am doing this for God. God can see it. 
And that's kind of the concept that we have with all of these decorations that are out of bronze, all in the courtyard of the temple, right? That represents the Gentile world in many ways, doesn't it? There's a lot of symbolism in the temple. In verses 40 to 47, more instruments in this interior decoration, this design that God has given. Here him also made the pots, the shovels, and the basins. All of the stuff is made out of, out of bronze. So here him finished all the work that he did for King Solomon on the house of the Lord. The two pillars, the two bowls of capitals were on the tops of the pillars and the two lattice works to cover the two bowls of the capitals. Verse 42, 400 pomegranates. I mean, he's making, I don't know how long it took him to make this, but this is a massive endeavor. Verse 45, the pots, the shovels, and the basins, all these vessels in the house of the Lord, which here and made for King Solomon, were of burnished bronze. In the plain of the Jordan, the king cast them in the clay ground between Succoth and Zerah. That's where they were made. And Solomon left all the vessels unweighed. There's so much bronze, he didn't even bother to weigh it. That's an interesting comment, isn't it? There were so many of them. The weight of the bronze was not ascertained. And then in verses 48 through 51, right, now we read about the gold, the different golden aspects inside the temple. On the outside is bronze, on the inside is gold, right? There are degrees of holiness in the Old Testament. Gold represents the more holy areas. On the outside, the bronze areas, it's not as holy. All of it was finished in the, the, the interior sacred decorations of the temple, And all of it was done using the best materials because God deserves the best workmanship in our worship. One general, again, observation here is that in the degrees of holiness, in the inside of the temple, you had all gold and portions of silver. On the outside, the metal isn't as expensive. In the coming of Jesus Christ, many of these lessons that we've learned tonight, they they all become transformed, don't they? There are still priests that are needed today in building the temple, aren't there? God God used Gentiles to build the temple then, and He still uses, as Ray said this morning, Gentiles to build the temple that are living stones. The parallels are quite amazing. God's priests still need cleansing today. Isn't that what that sea represented, the cleansing we need, the water? That's why all of the water was needed in the temple. Riken points out there are two differences, though, in the priest then and the priest today. All of you are priests if you're a believer. The first difference is that now all God's people are priests. Then they weren't. Every believer in Jesus Christ has been called into holy service of God. That, that is why we're going to conclude in a moment. Are you using the gift? If you've been given a bronze shovel, shovel with all of your might. And don't wonder why you don't have a gold one. That's the, that's the, that's the application I didn't give you your spiritual gifts. And whatever God has given to you, use that to the glory of God and don't look for necessarily an upgrade or whatever it is. If I have a bronze shovel, I am to use that to glorify God. Didn't our scripture reading pound that lovingly into our minds and hearts? We all have different gifts, but we are of one body. God is building up a spiritual house, 1 Peter 2.5. To be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifice acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Again, our scripture reading supports a lot of this. Another difference between Solomon's temple and the church of Jesus Christ, the cleansing at the temple was only skin deep, but the cleansing that we have through Jesus Christ, through the Holy Spirit, it works on the inside, doesn't it? 
Hebrews 9.9 tells us something about perfecting the conscience of the worshiper. Now the great sea of God's cleansing grace is furnished to our souls. Through faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit makes our hearts clean from sin. There are a couple of other verses here to consider and to re, just to be reminded of. 1 John 1.7, the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. Hebrews 9.14 talks about purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We have such great promises in Christ We are to cleanse ourselves from every defilement, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 7, of body and spirit bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. And that leads us to our last application, right? Whatever spiritual gift God has given to you, right, are the priest had responsibilities entrusted to them in, in the old covenant. And now that Jesus Christ has come, our high priest is here, he has given us spiritual gifts. Am I using my gift? Thankfully, many of you are right here to build up, the body of Christ, to glorify God. In Christ, all of those sacred items have a newer sense of fulfillment for us in the new covenant. Other things we could comment on, Solomon built a beautiful house, but Jesus said, I'm going to prepare a place for you, didn't he? And that's going to be far better than what Solomon built. We already mentioned about the judgment hall. Jesus Christ is the king who sits on the throne, and he will judge the world in righteousness, won't he? Part of our scripture reading reminds us that God's, God gives His people different spiritual gifts. And what He gives, He wants us to use, and that should be included in your personal life priority, shouldn't it? How can I use the gift that God has given to me to honor Him and to build up His church? We have this privilege in using our spiritual gift in God's house. And God supplies the the capabilities for us to continue serving Him in whatever area He has called us. When Jesus Christ came into our world in the incarnation, every moment along the way of His journey to the cross was perfect personal priorities. He came to fulfill a mission, didn't He? He didn't get sidetracked like Solomon. He didn't fall into the love of pleasure and luxury and whatever it was. Jesus stayed the course for our salvation because He knew what He had to do to save us to fulfill His mission in this plan of salvation. I would say that if you're here tonight and you're not yet a believer in Jesus Christ, the most important personal priority in the whole world is what? Do you believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior? I won't say Lord. As your Savior, that's all it is, right? That's the most important personal priority. And I'm hoping that we see more baptisms again next week. That's a blessing to see that. Because Jesus perfectly kept the right priorities in the plan of salvation, now through the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit, we too can have the right priorities in our life, right? Use of our finances and here, the use of our spiritual gift. And may God help us and we thank Him for those of you that are doing that in your life. Father in heaven, we thank You for the life of Solomon. Lord, help us not to be too critical in areas where we ourselves may be struggling with the very things he struggled with. Lord, we do thank you that he he did love you in his life, and though he got off the right course in his own personal priorities eventually, Lord, we are so thankful that your son, the greatest king, one greater than Solomon, 
Lord, he kept those personal redemptive priorities to come to this world through the incarnation, Lord, through his baptism in public ministry, to die on the cross, Lord, so that we could be saved. Lord, we pray that you would help us to use any resources in our lives wisely. And Father, help us to utilize the spiritual gift you've given to us. And thank you, Lord, for many people in this congregation that actively are involved in the life of your church and and they use their gift to the best of their ability. Lord, we are so grateful for the way that you bring people to know your son, Jesus Christ. And we pray, Lord, that in the next week as we witness baptisms in our congregation, Lord, that you would continue to bring people into your temple, Lord, to serve you as priest that you have called us to. Father, we thank you for this passage. Help us, Lord, to be again be reminded of the beauty of the gospel, Lord, and how you have saved us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.